Let me invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 2 this morning. And last week I asked you to fill out the first line of your handout. And uh, hopefully you did that. You'll be able to follow along and uh, be understanding where we're going if you did do that. And if you haven't, there's a couple more opportunities for you to do that. We have several more um, letters to each of these churches that Jesus is having John write to. And uh, so you do yourself well if you um, followed the outline there that I gave to you last week. John is writing down these seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor, letters that came from Jesus Christ Himself. Remember, John had this vision while he's on the island of Patmos. He's being exiled as a result of his faith in Jesus Christ and basically imprisoned on this small island, not able to leave the island. And in these letters, or while he was there, John sees the risen Christ. He sees the glorious Christ. And that's shown to us in chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. He, he talks to this Christ, and Christ tells him, you need to write down what I'm about to tell you because I want you to send this message to these seven churches. And these messages are designed to encourage these churches and, I believe, all believers because each one ends with the phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So that includes all churches of all times. Jesus is trying to challenge these churches and to warn them to persevere until the return of Christ or until death, whichever comes first. Jim Elliott, the missionary to the Aka Indians, once said, He is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So Jesus is trying to explain to these churches that they need to persevere. They need to continue on. Hold fast to the faith that you first received. And do it even through persecution. Even through trial and tribulation. Continue on until I return or until you die. And as we study this second letter today, this letter to Smyrna, this letter within the larger letter of Revelation, It should both encourage us, it should comfort us, and it should warn us. We should be encouraged because Christ is not far from us. He is near. He knows the persecution that you face. You'll see this here as we study this church, and if you've looked at it already, you've already noticed it. He knows of the increased persecution that you will face in the future, and that some of your lives may may end as a result of your faith in Jesus Christ. And so we should be comforted, but also warned that that our trials may not be over. They may not be being completed in the near future. They may continue. They may increase. And so the, the encouragement, or the warning, I should say, is that we need to continue on no matter what comes our way. Chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Let's read this passage together. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. 
and to blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you'll be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. The message to this church in Smyrna is, despite tribulation, be faithful until death. And I think I would say that that message is the same for us. Despite tribulation, be faithful until death. The, the name of the church or the city in which the church resides is Smyrna. Smyrna is the next city on the route, uh, on the postal route there. Uh, remember, these churches, there are seven of them, all in Asia Minor. And it seems as if they begin in Ephesus, which is in the, the uh, southwest, and they move up to Smyrna and then Pergamum, and they go around in a circle. seems to follow some sort of postal route that they would have had. Smyrna is 35 miles north of Ephesus, which is the church we looked at last week. It's on the coast of the Aegean Sea, and it's modern um, Turkey, Izmir, Turkey, to be specific. This city was a beautiful city. It had paved streets, a library, a gymnasium, and a shrine to Homer, who was apparently born there. And so this message comes from Jesus to the Apostle John. John is supposed to write it down and send it to this church at Smyrna. But I believe, as I said earlier, that this message is also designed for Ambassador Baptist Church as well. Look at verse 11 again. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Each letter that is written to these specific churches is also written to all churches. And we know that because each letter concludes with that statement. Towards the end of, of Jesus' message to these individual churches, He writes a message to all churches that, that what I'm telling you, is meant for all churches. So that means that we also need to be faithful until death despite tribulation. Now, each time in each of these letters, the letter begins with uh, the recipient, the angel to the church at, at Smyrna, but then it goes on to give a description of the one who is writing. Notice the second part of verse 8. The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, Okay, this points us back to uh, chapter 1, verse, um, verse 17. Notice what John sees when he's on the island. He says, it says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. So what's happening here is in each letter, Jesus describes himself in the same way that he reveals himself to John in chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. We saw last week that he was the one who holds the seven stars in his hand and he stands among or walks among the golden lampstands. That was one of the visions that John saw. And so what Jesus does is at the beginning of each one, is instead of saying, this is Jesus writing to you, he gives one of his names in chapter 1. And here he gives us the name the first and the last, and then also who was dead and has come to life. The first and the last is a phrase that is used of God the Father often. In fact, in um, 
In Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6, God the Father calls Himself the first and the last. And He effectively does the same thing in chapter 1, verse 8. Look up to verse 8 of chapter 1. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first letter of the alphabet and the last. In other words, I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. There's nothing outside of Me. I I complete it all. Um, And Jesus calls Himself this as well. Both God the Father and Jesus call uh, themselves first and last. Revelation 1, verse 17. Revelation 2, verse 8. Obviously, He does here. And then in chapter 22, verse 13. Then secondly, He says, I am the one who was dead and who has come to life. He's not a Savior who has died and He has stayed dead. We talked about this when we looked at chapter 1. He has come to life. He is alive. He is living for you. In fact, verse 17 says, or verse 18 says, I am alive forevermore. In other words, no longer to die. When the disciples, uh, actually when the women came to the tomb in Luke chapter 24, they, they um, were searching for Jesus and the angel said, why do you seek for the living one among the dead? You, you're here among the tombs. Why are you looking for the living one? He is alive. He lives. The resurrected Lord is the one who gives life. And so this should provide great encouragement because it's not just that Christ went through suffering, but that He overcame suffering. That He continued on all the way till the end. That He paved the way for us to overcome. And so this would be great hope and encouragement to Smyrna who is now going through deep trials as we're going to see. That Jesus is the first and the last. He has it all under control. And he, he was dead, but now He is alive. So that should provide us great hope. After seeing the description of Christ there at the end of verse 8, we now turn to the commendation. The commendation. He begins with, I know. Again, points, back to, uh, points us back to chapter 2, verse 2, where He said, I know your deeds. He, he is familiar with everything that's going on with these churches. That He stands among the, the lampstands. It's, it's as if he, He's there trimming them and making sure they're, they're burning brightly. He knows all the things that are happening with these churches. And so He begins to the church at Smyrna by saying, I know. And um, what does He observe about this church? What is it that Christ knows about this church? Well, it says specifically that He knows their tribulation and their poverty their tribulation and their poverty. I think the word tribulation there is simply a summary of what he's about to say. I know about your tribulation. And here are the two ways in which you have uh, gone through trials. One is is displayed in your poverty. The fact that that you are poor. And secondly, it is that, that you have had to put up with the blasphemy of these people who call themselves Jews. So first, the first tribulation that Jesus knows about is their poverty. It says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Now what is Jesus talking about here? Is He talking about physical poverty and physical wealth? I know your physical poverty, that you don't have very much money, but you're also, but He says in parentheses, but you are physically rich. Would that make a whole lot of sense? It doesn't seem to. What if it were what if he were talking about 
spiritual in both cases. I know that you are physically poor, that you are weak in your faith, but you're also rich. Could could argue that, but but likely on first read, I think you understand the the play on words that Jesus is making here. I know your poverty physically. I know that you don't have a lot. You don't have a lot of money or resources, but you are spiritually rich. Isn't that how you would understand it as you look at it? I know your physical poverty, but you are spiritually wealthy. This is the opposite of the church at Laodicea, who in chapter 3, verse 17, they thought that they were rich, but Jesus said that they were really poor spiritually. And so to Smyrna, this was an encouragement, a commendation. I know about your tribulation. I know about your physical poverty. And the word here used for poverty is a word that means abject poverty. It's not something that just means merely poor or in comparison to the rest of culture, you're poor. It, it means abject poverty. You're in, a, you're in a desperate situation physically. If you wanted to simply say poor, he would use another Greek word, but he uses this one that's translated in our Bibles as poverty, but could be translated as extreme poverty. So Jesus is saying, I know your extreme poverty. Perhaps people had been taking advantage of them. Maybe they were stealing from them or robbing them of their goods. But whatever the case, Jesus commends them for their riches, for their spiritual wealth. James chapter 2, verse 5, commends the poor of the world. He says, Did not God choose the poor of the world to be rich in the faith and heirs of the kingdom to which He had promised to those who love Him? God often chooses the poor people of this world to bring to Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that all poor people come to Christ. We understand that. But think of the disciples and Jesus Himself. Didn't foxes have holes and and birds have their nests? But Jesus, the Son of Man, does not have a place to lay His head. That, that in general, um, God often uses poor people to come to Christ. That nothing inherently wrong about wealth, but certainly there is when that is the that is the the sole satisfaction of our life. The second area in which Christ knew about, he knew about their tribulation, he knew about their poverty, but he also knew about the blasphemy that they endured. Notice the source of this blasphemy in verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the blasphemy by which those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The source of this blasphemy comes from people who say they are Jews. This is probably a group of ethnic Jews. Okay, So their father was Abraham biologically, but, but they were claiming that their heritage actually meant something before God, as if because they're Jewish that they could actually improve their standing before God or they had a perfect standing before God. Do you remember what Jesus said when He was talking to the Jews in the treasury about, um, about, about Jewish heritage in John chapter 8? Turn there with me and we'll, we'll take a look at that. John chapter 8. He was talking about true disciples in this conversation. And in verse 38, He says, You always do the things which you heard from the fathers. And the Jews were, were thinking that Jesus was talking about their earthly ancestor. And they said, well, Abraham is our father. 
Notice how Jesus replies in chapter 8, verse 39. We'll read again their their reply. I I just quoted it, but I'll, I'll read it again. Chapter 8, verse 39. They answered and said to Him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But, but as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are de- doing the deeds of your father. They said, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? Is it because you cannot hear my word? You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, he speaks a lie. He speaks from his own, excuse me, whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You see what Jesus is saying here? They think that he is talking about their father, Abraham, but Jesus is saying, you don't get it. Ethnic race does not matter at all when it comes to spiritual things. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish in heritage. It matters whether you are a child of the Father. And they say, well, well, we've never done anything. He says, actually, you are of your father, the devil, because if you were of God then you would believe Me. Because I have spoken to you what I have heard from the Father. You see, being a Jew outwardly is not the most important thing. Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 2. He says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. In Galatians 3.7, Paul says, Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. You want to be a son of your father Abraham? You want to do what Abraham did? You want to boast in your Jewish heritage? Then, then you need to be of faith. That is, you need to believe in Jesus Christ. If not, your Jewish heritage will do you nothing. You can still be a, a, a child of your father the devil. So apparently, what's happening in Smyrna, you can turn back to Revelation with me. What's happening in Smyrna is that these Jews were claiming to have a right standing before God because of their ethnicity. That we are okay because we are Jewish heritage. We're physical descendants of Abraham. But, But what Jesus is saying on behalf of John, or through His servant John, to this church of Smyrna is they really are not. They really are not Jews. Okay, They may be with regard to their ethnicity, but that's not the thing that matters the most. They're not spiritual Jews. So do you want to be a son of your, your father Abraham? Then you need to have faith. You see, Christ looks at people not on the, the basis of their ethnic heritage, but on, their ba- on the basis of their faith in Him. On their spiritual heritage, we could say. And the proof of this is that in the final 
at the end of all things, there will be people from every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation. Not just Jews. Isn't that true? So, Christ commends these people for their poverty. The fact that even though they're physically poor, they're spiritually rich. And He also commends them for enduring the blasphemy that comes from these ethnic Jews. Now, you're not going to find a condemnation or a consequence for disobedience like you saw in your chart. This is one of the churches that does not get condemned specifically by Christ. He simply commends them. He simply praises them for for their faithfulness. Instead, He gives them an encouragement. uh, Something that they should be encouraged about in verse 10. He says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you'll be tested and you'll have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Well, what a church like this who is going through deep poverty and deep tribulation, persecution from outside, what, what they would hope for in a time like this would be something like this from Christ. Maybe a promise of deliverance. Don't fear because I'm about to get you out of this mess. All this tribulation that you're going through, I'm about to remove it from you. You're going to have relative peace for the rest of your lives. But that's not what Jesus says. Instead of a promise of deliverance, Christ gives a warning or a charge to continue on in the midst of suffering. If you think your tribulation is difficult now, just wait. It's going to get worse. Now what kind of encouragement is that Jesus here gives them a strong command. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Or literally, stop fearing what you are destined to suffer. God has caused or allowed for the future events of this church to be plunged into further persecution, but don't fear it. Stop fearing what's about to come because I'm in control. I am the first and the last, as He said earlier. Notice the nature of their suffering there in verse 10, that they will be in prison, that some of you will go into prison. Specifically how? The devil is about to cast them in. Now, this is not the entire church that's going to be in prison, but but a select few would be in prison. And this would likely bring on fear both to the people who are in prison, not knowing their future fate, and also the people who are left in the church, thinking that, that they may be next or that that their close uh, church family would be be killed or would have to die in those prisons. And so what Jesus says to them is, stop fearing. Don't be afraid of what's about to happen. Because if you continue on until the end, He'll say, then you'll receive the crown of life. Notice how this is happening. The, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. Now, Now, how does that happen? Does the devil physically pick up these people and take them to prison, close the door and lock it? I don't think so. It appears that from the context that the Jews, that these ethnic Jews are the ones that are doing it. And that's why they are called in, in uh, verse, um, verse 9, at the end of the verse, they're called a synagogue of Satan. In other words, they're the tool of Satan. You want to know how this persecution is going to happen? 
Well, if you look at it from a larger perspective, it is God that's allowing it. But from a nearer perspective, it is Satan that's sending you into prison. And from an even nearer perspective, it is these Jews, these ethnic Jews who are Satan's tools who will take you and put you into prison. It's not much different than the role that the Jews played in the death of Jesus. Satan, we could say, was behind the death of Jesus. That he wanted to see Christ die and he worked in people to to cause that to happen. But the Jews were his tools. They were part of Satan's seed. They were used to accomplish his purposes to destroy the Son of God. Notice in verse... um, 10 that Christ gives a warning and I think this warning is actually a means of encouragement. He says, stop fearing what's about to happen. This is encouraging because uh, because Christ gives them a clue into the real opposition that they are facing. That, that they're not fighting against just people. It's not just flesh and blood that they're fighting against, but it's actually Satan himself who's behind this. Satan wants to destroy you. Like Jesus said to Peter, He wants to destroy you, but I have prayed for you, Peter. Jesus knows the tribulation that each church is suffering. He knows who's behind these things. And He knows that there's a great spiritual warfare going on that that really, in a real sense, we are not fighting against flesh and blood. We're not fighting against people who oppose our church or what we stand for. We're really fighting against the rulers and against the power, or, or not against them, but we're fighting the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. And so for Smyrna, they likely didn't recognize this. Felt like all this opposition was simply from the humans around them, these ethnic Jews who are part of this, this persecution. But Jesus is saying it's actually more than that. Notice the timing of their suffering that it will happen for ten days. There is some debate as to what this ten days refers to. Some people say it's just a generic term. Like a lot of times in in the book of Revelation, there's lots of symbols and they mean uh, more than what's being said, that they're symbolic of something else. And so maybe this ten days simply means for a brief period of time. could be the same period of time that Daniel and his three friends had to uh, go without the king's meat to be tested. It's a, a period of testing could be simply that. Uh, but I don't see any reason why we'd, we wouldn't take this literally. That it simply is ten days. That they're going to be in prison for ten days. Now that doesn't sound like too hard of a tribulation, but notice the end of the verse. Notice it seems to me that this is going to end in one way. It says, and you will have tribulation for ten days be faithful until death. How is it going to end for some of these believers if Jesus is saying to them, be faithful all the way to the point of death? That your imprisonment likely, in my mind, likely will end in death. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. And yet, despite what would happen to them and the fear that could have come upon the the congregation, they were not to fear. Notice 
who also is behind this. I said that the Jews are behind their imprisonment, which they're really a tool of Satan. But we ultimately have to recognize that this is brought on by God. That God is ultimately in control of this and He's allowing them to be sent in, into prison. Notice the middle of the verse. Behold, verse 10, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. That you will be tested. That God has a purpose for this trial. The fact that they're being sent into prison is actually coming from God. And so there should be hope there that God has a purpose in their suffering. Satan's intention, he has one purpose. He's designing... He's hoping that they fall, that they turn away from the faith, that they recant, that they turn from Christ. But God has another intention. He wants to show the reality, the the authenticity of their faith through suffering. And so they should have hope that God is ultimately in control. And their responsibility, as we saw at the end of the verse, is to persevere, to be faithful unto death. Don't forsake the gospel. Persevere all the way to the end. Hold fast. Don't give up. Christian, do you understand what it means to follow Christ? Do you understand what the mark of a true believer is? This is what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. He said, if you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Now, he's not talking about little hangnails that can be a persecution for us or, or a trial or, or a quirky neighbor that we have to deal with. He said, take up your cross. He's talking about the instrument of death that would be used to kill him. Take up that execution, uh, that, that piece of execution, that, that means of execution. And that means that if he's saying that that he is saying that if anyone is willing to follow him, that they have to be willing to go all the way to the cross with him. We have to be willing to to suffer and to die for him, with him. And so Christ says, be faithful all the way until that time, whether that means death because of me or whether that means persecution all the way till the end. Be faithful. You may not ever have a lot of money. You may not ever have a lot of support from the people around you. But be faithful until death. I am with you, the first and the last. I was dead, but I am alive. See, Christ has overcome. Notice the conqueror's reward in verse 10. It says, Be faithful unto death. Notice what he gives. I will give you the crown of life. And then the conqueror's reward is actually found at the end of verse 11. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. So Jesus promises two things here. He says, I will, I will give you the crown of life. This is not a crown given to specific people, just special believers. This is an elite group of believers. I said last week that overcomers refer to all believers. Whoever is a follower of Jesus Christ and who makes it to heaven will receive the crown of life we could say the crown which is life. It's not a special reward given to to just a select group of believers. This is the crown that will be given to all believers. And the crown of our 
future existence is eternal life. That's why I say it's the crown which is life. And negatively, the end of verse 11 says, we will not be hurt by the second death. The three types of death that are talked about in the Bible are physical death, the separation of the spirit or the immaterial from the body, the material. Then there's spiritual death, which is the separation of the soul from God, which is what we all were from the time that we were conceived until we became a Christian. We were spiritually dead. We were separated from God. And then the third type of death that's talked about in the Scripture is this type of death, and that is the second death. It is eternal spiritual death. It is the separation of the soul from God forever. It's the continuation of spiritual death for all of eternity. And what Jesus is saying is that you will not have to experience that. You will not have to experience eternal separation from God forever. And that's a great promise for us. The promise is this. The second death, which is eternal condemnation and punishment, will not and cannot hurt us if we persevere in the faith. Because true believers do persevere in the faith. So the way that we overcome, the result of our overcoming is that we will share in the resurrection of Christ and we will not be tormented by the second death, by being separated from God forever. Now that doesn't mean that that our perseverance is the means of our eternal life, that if we persevere, then God will look back and say, well, you did good enough, I'll accept you in. No, that's the tangible assurance that we will not experience the the second death. We have assurance. We can have assurance, assurance in this life that we are one of God's if we persevere, if we continue on. And so the message that we have from Jesus through John to the church at Smyrna is whatever type of persecution you're facing, be faithful until death. Now perhaps you are thinking about persecution in your life and the fact that you may not have experienced physical persecution. I mean, these believers are. We talked in the Sunday school class about the first three centuries of the church and and how many Christians were martyred for their faith. And in our cushy Western world, it's, it's hard to imagine being persecuted physically for the sake of Christ. Turn to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, because Jesus makes it clear that, that those who follow Him will be persecuted. And so this should rub us. This should... This should uh, cause us to think, why are we not being persecuted? John chapter 15, verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, Jesus says to His disciples, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted Me, they will also persecute you. If they kept My word, they will keep yours also. See that? phrase in the middle, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. He didn't say they might. He said they will. Paul is even more forceful in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. He says, all who are godly will suffer persecution. They will suffer persecution. 
Now, don't raise your hands, but how many of you have suffered physical persecution as a result of your stand for Christ? How many of you have been beaten or tortured or struck as a result of your stand for Jesus Christ? Perhaps there are a few, but very likely not a one. In fact, I know of no Christian in the United States, I know of no Christian personally, who has been tortured, imprisoned, beaten, or killed for their faith. And so does that mean that we are not godly? That all these people, all these Christians that I know are not godly? Does that mean that we're not not true followers of Christ? Because Jesus says, if they persecuted me, and they did, then they will persecute you. Paul says, all who are godly will be persecuted. And this also does not mean that we need to go out and look for physical persecution. Okay, we find the people that are most opposed to Christ and we stand in their face and say, you're going to hell and we're not. And hope that they, they beat us or, or give us some sort of scar. Smyrna's tribulation was certainly not all physical. Do you realize that? Part of their persecution, their tribulation, was that the ethnic Jews were blaspheming the name of Christ. So what... My argument is, and turn to John chapter 5, I would argue that, that the persecution that's talked about in Scripture is not always physical. Now, often it is. And we do live in a cushy society where we have relative peace when it comes to our standing for Christ. But if you look around most of the known world, or most of the world, and you look at the history of the world, you will see that people have suffered physically for the sake of Christ. And you see that people still do suffer physically for the sake of Christ. John chapter 5, verse 16. And this, this will help us to see that there is more than physical persecution. Chapter 5, verse 16. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now at this point in His ministry, Jesus was not being physically beaten by the Jews because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So what is John saying here? He's saying that Jesus was being persecuted in some other way than physical. So what I'm saying to you is that you may very well be facing persecution right now, although not physical, because of your stand for Christ. You may have family members who shun you or treat you differently than they do your unsaved family members because you're a Christian. You may have neighbors that talk about you behind your back because of the things that you do or don't do. You may be stopped from moving up in your company because you've chosen not to work on Sundays or because you've chosen to get off on Wednesday nights because you want to spend time serving God and spend as much time as you can learning about Him and worshiping Him and serving Him. And because of that, your employer will not allow you to move up any farther. Do you realize that suffering for Christ is a privilege? It should not be a sorrow. Paul talks about the joy that he has. He says, I want to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. So you may very well be facing persecution now. But in spite of that, don't 
fear what you're about to face, even the worst type of persecution that you could face, the, the, the being killed for the sake of Christ will not take you away from the life that you have in Christ. Paul says that nothing can separate, separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Not even death. So if, if even the worst thing happens that you are tortured and killed for the sake of Christ, it would not separate you from God. And the proof that you are an overcomer is that you will persevere and that nothing will separate you. If in the midst of your trial you turn away from God, then that will be proof that you never knew Him. So, although you may not be experiencing physical suffering, you may be experiencing persecution. Christ did on behalf of the Jews. It was not physical at that time. Let me um, just uh, pose two more questions and we'll be done. Number one, did you ever wonder what makes this church in Smyrna a shining lampstand? And these churches, these seven churches that are given, what's amazing about Jesus' message to these seven churches is that He doesn't talk about the different programs they have or don't have. If He only had this, or... He doesn't spend a whole lot of talking time talking about a specific program. Like if you could just enhance some of the features of this one program that you have. He doesn't say anything about uh, the type of music that you offer in your church or, or whether or not you have a choir. He doesn't even say how many people you should have at your churches or, or that you need to bring more people in. Here's the message. That real prosperity is faithfulness to God. And that means that Whatever church it is, no matter what size, no matter how much wealth they have, this church had little. They were, in, they were abject, extreme poverty. Real prosperity is faithfulness to God. It is eliminating sin. It is, it is what Christ commended them for. That they were standing for the sake of Christ. And that's why Christ said, you are rich. That's what I'm looking for. I don't care about more programs. I don't care about sheer numbers. It's not important. It's about faithfulness to me and my Word. So one of the profound truths that we learn from this wonderful little church is that it's more important to be faithful than to be powerful. In the eyes of the world, they had very little power, and yet Christ commends them with some of the highest praise that He gives any of the churches. The second question I want to ask is, how do we get there? If real prosperity is being faithful to God, then how do we get there? What you're going to find in this passage and you're going to find throughout the rest of Scripture, particularly the New Testament, is that the responsibility does not lie in the authority of the church or the pastor of the church, the deacons of the church alone. It says at the end of the passage, let him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the pastor of the church? To the one who's responsible to uphold the doctrine? No, to the churches. He's speaking to the churches specifically. And since this is the case, who is responsible for the spiritual well-being of this church? It is the congregation, the body of believers as a whole. Paul supports this truth in 1 Timothy 3.5. He says that the church is the pillar and support of the truth. He doesn't say the pastor. 
He doesn't say the deacons are the pillar in support of the truth. He says the church is. Jude chapter 1, verse 3 is speaking to believers. He says those who are called. He says, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. He's saying that this is the responsibility of the whole church. In 1 Thessalonians 5.21, Paul says, examine everything carefully. That is you, all you people, examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Turn from evil. So you might be thinking, well, why do I keep bringing this up? Why are you trying to pass the responsibility from yourself to us? No, I'm not doing that. But I, I do want us to think about the truth that has been entrusted to us as a church. That as a congregation of believers, that, that we should take ownership in what is being taught in this pulpit, whether from my lips or the lips of any other speaker, that we need to take ownership for it, that we need to, 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 um, to make sure that it is of God. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand that, that as the pastor, I will incur a stricter judgment according to James. A stricter judgment than you. And so I have a responsibility to uphold truth. I'm not trying to get rid of that. But what I'm suggesting to you is that it's not mine alone. One of the ways that I uphold the truth is by you making sure that I'm saying what is consistent with the rest of Scriptures. And so you have not done your job if you've simply shown up on Sunday or Wednesday. That's a great start, but it's not enough. You have to, according to Acts 17, examine the Scriptures daily to see if what is being said is true. That's what the Bereans did of Paul. You must go further and lovingly confront me if I am in doctrinal error, if I am speaking against what Christ has said. And I think further you need to pray for me and my teaching that you do have some ownership, that this is part of of who we are as a church. And then I think you need to encourage one another to remain steadfast in the things that we have learned from, from the beginning. So how do we get there to be a faithful church? It's it's a group project. It's a community project. We all need each other. It can't just be the pastor alone doing it all. The church has a responsibility to uphold the truth. Let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And whatever kind of persecution comes, we need to be faithful, even if it means until death. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this good example of a church in the city of Smyrna. Thankful for the men and women there who had stood up for the sake of truth and who would even die for the sake of our Savior. We can't imagine ever having to experience something like that, imprisonment or death as a result of our faith. But there are countless people who are suffering physically now in this world as a result of their faith in Christ and there have been countless in history past who have done the same. And so because of that, Lord, in in one sense we are humbled because we are able to speak about the truth of Jesus Christ. We're able to read about it, to study it, to to pass it on to others, to, 
talk about it each week as we meet together. And we do it with without opposition from the government or fear of being shut down. And so we are humbled because You have allowed us to be in this type of place in this type of time period. But we recognize that it may not be like this forever. And so we pray that You'd help us to love You more and more. And because of our love, grow in our faithfulness to You. Help us to do the deeds we did at first. Help us, as we talked about last week, to, to not to lose our first love, but to take pleasure and joy in following You and, and believing Your promises and obeying You. Help us to be a church like Smyrna, to understand that Jesus Christ holds all things in His hand, that He walks among the lampstands, that He has all of history planned out from the first to the last, and that He is no longer dead, but is alive. And so we can trust Him to accomplish His purposes in our work as we serve Him and we honor You. pray that You'd help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Hymn 190, There is a Redeemer. Sing praise to our Savior for purchasing us with His blood. That's what it means to redeem. Let me ask you to stand with me as we sing Hymn 190. for the sake of Christ. Maybe you don't know how to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. I'd be happy to talk to you after. Or maybe you need to be baptized or join the church. And um, if you do, I'd be happy to talk to you about those things as well. Um, let me have you uh, sing with me on this last, this last verse. When I stand in glory, something that we have to look forward to, receive the crown of life and not have to experience the second death. When I stand in glory, 